Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 21, and so it begins. The Nazi government, now that it was in power, wanted information about who made up its various communities, specifically who within them were Jewish, and they wanted this information fast. Because the new dominant mythology throughout Germany held that the Jews were an alien ingredient into the Aryan mix. Their presence, beliefs, and way of life dragged down the purebloods from obtaining not only freedom, but the greatness their country was destined for. And for the Nazis, that's what it came down to, the bloodlines. Faith or practice did not matter. Blood, according to Hitler, tells. But the essential question, or barrier, remained. Who of the 60 million Germans within the country were Jewish? Until that was answered, the government was working blind. And, at least for now, Nazi officials wanted to apply the precision of a scalpel to rooting out these undesirables. And, because precision was the order of the day, a test case, if you will, was needed. For example, Prussia, Germany's largest state, held three-fifths of the country's population, so, if a system could be created to find the Jews there, then it could be incorporated throughout the rest of the country. The problem facing the Nazis was assimilation. The Great War, with all its destruction and chaos, had forced or encouraged mass migration or dislocation. And that, coupled with previous German census asking routine questions, led to the current rulers of Germany not knowing who were the Jews, their names, their occupations, or their addresses, and they wanted all this information. Back to the test case, ranking Nazi officials wanted the 41 million Germans within Prussia processed, and a list drawn up of who was Jewish. But the Prussian government made no bones about the fact that it, as an entity, was completely unable to undertake such an effort. But De Homag, with its connections to high-ranking Nazi party members, found out about the experiment and offered its services. A deal was quickly struck. De Homag would handle the entire process. They would create a census pattern and categorize every Prussian citizen. To sweeten the deal, De Homag would, on its own, hire and train the extra people needed to process the information. All the government had to do was collect the information, as De Homag specified. Soon, a middleman by the name of Karl Koch reported to Thomas Watson in late May of 1933 that a contract worth 1.35 million Reichsmarks had been agreed to, and if this test case went well, an even larger contract could be had for the entire country. Watson wrote back saying he was overjoyed and hoped to visit Germany next year. And typical of how things went in Germany during those heady early years of the Nazi party, before its true objective was known, the German labor front, which dominated the Berlin Employment Office because of its political loyalty to Hitler, announced the hiring of some 900 Berliners for this great patriotic undertaking. From the Nazis' point of view, this could be construed as killing two birds with one stone creating jobs while beginning the process of rooting out the Jewish menace. By June of that year, De Homag was set. 
500,000 census takers, all on the correct side of the Nazi party, went out door to door to ask their questions. Some questions directly asked the head of the household their religion. And if someone was reluctant to answer, the accompanying stormtroopers and SS officers would move in to get the information. Dehomag did everything they could to guarantee success. For example, instead of their normal 45 column card with 10 holes per column, they switched to cards with 60 columns, each again with 10 holes. Now, the cards could produce thousands of demographic possibilities, an ever-widening census net, if you will. By mid-September, just over 6,000 boxes arrived at the Alexanderplatz census complex in Berlin. Inside each box were the questionnaires which had been filled out by hand. Now it was time for the 450 data punchers to take the handwritten information and transfer it to punch cards. Of course, this all had been worked out beforehand. The three shifts would run continuously, 7.5 hours of work with a one-hour break. The goal was for each staffer to process 150 cards per hour, which meant that 450,000 had to be done every 24 hours. Obviously, coffee was free, strong, and plentiful. One by one, an individual's information was put on a card by punching out various combination of holes. Their country, gender, age, religion, mother tongue, this would come back to haunt the Polish Jews first, occupation, and number of children. Every few feet was a huge sign within the complex. The data clerks could not have missed it. It read, Be Aware. This sign was to focus the staffer's attention on column 22, which covered religion. Hole 1 was punched for a Protestant. Hole 2 was for a Catholic. Hole 3 was for the Jew. The next step was for the cards to be verified and mistakes caught. The process was completed by hollerith counters and proofing machines at a rate of 24000 and 15000 an hour, respectively. Whenever a Jew was found, a separate card was created, and the person's place of birth was logged. Then, the cards were sorted within a complex system of 25 categories and cross-indexed with other information. The result was a detailed census map of the Jewish people, job by job, city by city, and even block by block of where they lived. A Reich Statistical Office summary reported that the largest section of Jews in Berlin could be found in the Wilhelmdorf district. That group of people made up 13.54% of the area's population. Other information broke down this group even further, with exacting details about occupation and place of birth. But here is where Hollerith technology shone. The analysis said that with current persecution and subsequent immigration trends, quote, only 415,000 to 425,000 faith Jews would remain in the German Reich by the middle of 1936, unquote. This information was astoundingly precise, the implications staggering. But clearly, as it was only 1933, to have that many Jews remaining was unacceptable by those that mattered.
And so, armed with detailed information about where many Jews lived and worked, a blinding storm of anti-Semitic legislation erupted from Berlin. Banning this selected group, these individuals were no longer allowed to work in their academic, governmental, professional, or commercial endeavors. What's more, the decrees, when brought down to town or village level, had attached to it individual names. But there was more to be done with this furnished information. By cross-sorting the identified Jews with those persons born in Poland, Nazi Germany had its first exact list of the Ostjuden, or Eastern Jews. They would find themselves among the first targets for collection, imprisonment, and forced internment. The Nazis were thrilled with the results, but they weren't the only ones. Thomas Watson heard of the amazing success from Karl Koch and was ready to develop IBM's presence through De Mong in Germany even further. First, several IBM subsidiaries were merged with De Homag, but as those companies owed IBM money, the funds De Homag raised from working with the Prussian officials was sent to New York not as payment from the state government, which would have been taxed at a punishing rate, but instead as loan payments owed by these smaller companies. Thus, Watson, controlling things from New York, was making money during the Depression and avoiding harsh taxes. Then IBM decided to expand its presence in Germany by raising their investments there from 400,000 to 7 million Reichmarks. Some of this money went to buying land near Berlin to build factories where hollow-earth machines would be assembled. Those jobs came at the expense of American workers. With such potential for profit and growth, Watson, who was used to controlling everything he wanted to at work, decided the time had come for him to visit Germany. So he set out on a German ocean liner, Bremen, on October 13, 1933. And, deciding to make it a vacation-slash-work trip, he took his wife. Soon, the Watsons and Herr Heidinger and his wife were seeing the sights of Berlin. This also included a visit to the Alexanderplatz, where the test case was performed. There, Watson, who was so impressed, bought the staffers meals and Dresden pastries. One would think he wouldn't be able to miss the large block letter signs that instructed the workers to mark Jews in column 22, row 3 of their punch cards. Clearly, working with Germany would take IBM to new heights, and Watson wanted to make sure everything went according to plan. So Eugene Hartley, a census expert, was brought in to advise Dehomag. Hartley's job was to not only make Dehomag the best it could be, but to learn every aspect of its work and keep what he learned in a special handbook that only he and Watson could see. No copies were ever to be made. But, as with many dealings with Nazi Germany, there was what the people saw and other events happening behind closed doors. Before Watson left Germany, there was one more agreement made, but this one was kept secret. Watson wrote out a statement that gave Heidinger permission for Dehomag to undercut and take away business from IBM subsidiaries throughout Europe. And as Dehomag was intertwined with the Nazis, that political party would have a direct connection and influence with foreign businesses and government. 
a Nazi sphere of influence, if you will. Another part of the agreement was to allow De Helmag to approach other countries like Austria, Czechoslovakia, Poland, France, and Holland that had no or limited statistical services and offer themselves directly, again cutting out other IBM entities that were not in bed with the Nazis. Of course, this would give the Nazi party information about where Jews were in other countries. But before Heidinger could begin to steal IBM customers throughout Europe, making Dehomag the dominant census power in Europe, he wanted proof, written proof, from Watson for what he was about to do. But Watson had learned his lesson when he was prosecuted at the National Cash Register Company. Nothing was to be in writing. But Heidinger pushed for months, and eventually Watson gave in, knowing the potential for profits was tremendous. On August 28, 1934, Thomas sent a radiogram to Berlin. The recording said, quote, Confirming agreement reached between us last conference in Berlin. We extend German company rights to manufacture machines under our patent for all European countries. Formal contract following by mail. Thomas Watson. Unquote. One has to ask themselves, why was Watson going against the grain of the American mood? Anti-Nazi marches or rallies were being held in major cities throughout the U.S. and Europe. The New York Times had almost daily stories, many of them front page, of the latest barbaric treatment by the Nazis against their Jewish citizens. In short, the answer has to be, because he could. Few understood the complexities of the punch card system. Even fewer really knew that De Helmag was mostly owned and controlled by IBM. What's more, IBM was not bringing in German goods, which many wanted banned, and would have gotten someone's attention. Instead, they were shipping out machinery. Again, most people not knowing exactly what it was for. And lastly, Watson's name, nor the letters IBM, appeared anywhere on the punch cards or card readers. But there was another Thomas Watson, the side the citizens of the U.S. saw. This Watson donated large sums of money to charity. This Watson was the chairman of the Carnegie Endowment for Peace, a trustee of the New York University, and was nominated a director of the Federal Reserve Bank. This Watson had access to Secretary of State Cordell Hall, and with his donations to the Roosevelt campaign, also had access to the president. Soon the president of IBM and the president of the country corresponded regularly. But not everyone thought so highly of Thomas Watson. In fact, Willie Heidinger hated the man. He had never forgotten nor forgiven how Watson had swooped down on him during the mid-1920s when Dehomag a company Heidinger started, owed IBM's predecessor billions of worthless Reichmarks in royalty fees. Watson at first, from across the Atlantic, told Willie he would settle for 51% of the company and all debts would be forgiven. But when Watson traveled to Berlin and saw the state of the company, but also its potential, he raised his demand to 90%. And at the time, Heidinger cornered decided 10% of a thriving company was better than bankruptcy. But the kicker was, Heidinger's 10% would only remain as long as he was with Dehomag 
if he left the company, the 10% went back to IBM. But after watching Dehomag grow and grow some more, all Heidinger could think of was how this all once belonged to him. And what of the vast profits being made in Germany? Was that money staying in Germany, helping the German people? No. It was making its way to the U.S., to IBM, to Watson. No, long gone were the days of affection when, after their first trip together to Germany, Mrs. Watson asked Heidinger for a portrait of himself to keep as a reminder of their pleasant journey to Germany. But Willie's hatred was lost on Watson. He had simply shrewdly conducted a successful business deal. End of story. Watson wasn't losing any sleep. And as for Heidinger, getting angry wouldn't do any good either. But the German's anger was only the beginning. He wanted to get even. But for now, the leading German of Dehomag had to settle for making IBM executives in Berlin and throughout Europe lives miserable. Watson only cared about Dehomag's royalty payments coming to New York. Everything else was just the price of doing business. In truth, these two men could go on butting heads, but both were enjoying the money, prestige, and influence from their partnership. And really, they needed each other. Watson needed Heidinger's access to ranking Nazi officials. The German had purposefully allied Dehomag with those that mattered in Berlin's new government. But Heidinger needed IBM, and that meant Watson. Heidinger knew what the Nazis wanted, and he wanted the work for his company. This meant he needed IBM technology, and for now, the priceless punch cards that could only be gotten from New York. The tension between the two men never subsided, but because of their mutual need for each other, the IBM slash Dehomag relationship had two faces of one coin. In the U.S., Dehomag could be explained as an American-controlled, almost U.S.-owned subsidiary of IBM, with only token German shareholders. Or, if needs must, the coin could be flipped and Dehomag could be viewed as a loyal German, soon-to-be-read Nazi company that was tricking the naive Americans out of resources to help the company help their Nazi masters in accomplishing their goals. So what was Dehomag? The answer depended on who was asking. The power struggle between the two men was far from over, but for now, Watson was winning. And though the IBM executive might be the lone standing general left on the battlefield, there was one higher than him. And that was Adolf Hitler. Heidegger didn't like the feel of second place, so brought in a new player. Using every opportunity that came his way, the disgruntled German moved the company closer to the Nazi party. And in response, by the end of Hitler's first year in power, the Nazi party, in the form of its political and economics division, was ready to respond in kind. After, of course, a few questions were answered first. Just exactly who owned Dehomag? Heidinger's dubious written reply was, quote, my company is an entirely independent organization which has acquired patent rights from their American owners, unquote. True enough, as far as the words on the page. Of course, there was so much left out. 
Was vast amounts of German currency leaving the Third Reich? Heidinger, quote, Any worries as to whether or not excessive amounts of German funds are being exported are thoroughly unjustified, unquote. Well, yes, again, true, technically. Royalties being paid to IBM in order to avoid higher taxes, instead of leaving as profits, were being held in a German bank account. But the other part of the answer, which was left out, was, if Berlin agreed to give Dehelmag its blessing, that money would then be sent to New York. Other questions were handled in the same vein, but Heinegger, knowing how to play the game, ended his letter with the following. Quote, Negotiations are now pending in Berlin, their objective being an agreement between my company and the SA stormtroopers, high command in that city, Prussia, for the compilation of certain necessary statistics. Unquote. But this time, however, what was left out didn't need to be said, or in this case, written. The political and economics division of the Nazi party understood the language of evasiveness well enough. Besides, no one said no to the SA. Dehomag was now on board. Now Heidinger had an ace up his sleeve, or rather, a few more phone numbers in his Rolodex. They all led to phones sitting on big, impressive desks in Berlin, should the need arise, which it shortly did. Watson couldn't care less for Heidinger's hurt feelings, but he knew enough not to trust the man. So, in December of 1933, Watson demanded that a Carl Hummel, who Watson had personally groomed, be put on the board at Dehomag. In this order, Watson used the word request, but that was a polite formality. It was to be done forthwith. When Heidinger got the word from on high about the new board appointment, he exploded. On December 20th, Heidinger replied to Watson that his feelings were hurt that New York didn't even go through the motions of asking him what he thought about this. Then he said that Watson, he knew, wouldn't care a fig about hurt feelings, but he might care about the following. Heidinger had worked strenuously to convince the Nazi party that Dehomag was not influenced by the U.S. in any way but clearly an appointment like this belied that version of the truth. If those in Berlin found out about this, the Nazi party may feel the need to appoint their own political officers to the board to keep an eye on their investment. Their investment was not financial, but political. If that were to happen, soon Watson nor Heidinger would control Dehomag. No matter what New York Washington, the Hague Court, or the League of Nations said, screamed, or threatened, unless they were willing to invade Germany. Thomas Watson was beaten, and he knew it. From his or his secretary's typewriter came a two-page apology, with many misspellings, that said, the problem was simply one of translation. Watson claimed he wrote, suggest, not request. It was as simple as that. Of course, Heidinger was to be asked what he thought about the appointment. But with Watson's blood in the water, Heidinger was not about to quit fighting. He replied how happy he was to receive Watson's letter. Silly little thing, the translation of a word. Go figure. P.S. Hummel could be brought on as a senior manager, but he would not sit on the board. The score thus far, 
One for the American business dictator, one for the German business dictator. But the latter held the advantage. Also, Heidegger made sure any future contest would be played on his court. Now that we've had our Churchill mug contest, it's time for one just for the members. Hip, hip, hooray! That's right. So before there you know, were tens of thousands of listeners, now this time it's only a couple hundred, which vastly improves your chances of winning. So what I want you to do is send me an email to wwiipodcast at gmail.com. And in the um, subject area, if you could put member contest, that would be great. And I'll get those up and we'll do the drawing probably in about a week or so. And then uh, we'll have that. And you can let me know if you win. You can let me know if you want the FDR or the Churchill mug. Okay. So we'll, we'll get that going. Send me your emails just as soon as you can. And this is a chance to win for all those of you who did not. I'm sorry. Um, but here's another chance. Goodbye.